The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. This is the newscast for episode 31 for the week of September 4th, 2007. Alex, we've reached the official, unofficial end of summer and beginning of fall. Makes me sad. Yeah, Labor Day is upon us. Uh, I assume you you got some great family plans for the weekend. Uh, yes, my my plans with the family are that I'm going to leave them behind, and I'm yeah. I'm traveling. Finally, a, yeah. <laughs> exactly. They've been asking it. for this for years. <laughs> Believe me, my wife, she's really happy about this. No, um, going to to Minnesota for uh, a Secure World conference, teaching a class there. So I'm heading out tomorrow and teaching on Tuesday. We went, my family went to, uh, Elitch gardens yesterday. We, nice. We've been, we actually got season passes this year and, and enjoyed going to the park probably like eight times or so quite a bit. Uh, this is, we, as we went the rides, the, the, the lines were really short. The shortest it's been all year. We, we thought, man, it, no one comes to Elitch gardens on, on Labor Day weekend, which really surprised us. And then in the afternoon, we're like, well, let's go over to the water park area. And <laughs> we found where all of the people were, they were yeah. all in the water park. It was pretty hot yesterday, that's for sure. Yeah, it was pretty good. All right, why don't we go ahead and jump into the news? Uh, top of the news is uh, is Digital Globe it, uh, made made the news. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So last week we interviewed Chris Martinez, who's the CISO over there. But uh, this story is more about the the business that they do. Um, so I think we're all aware of the hurricane damage in Houston and and sort of in the Gulf states. And uh, Digital Globe is is lending their satellite imagery to help people respond to that. So they're providing uh, images of the the damage to help um, emergency responders figure out where they need to go and do other things like that. So I thought that was pretty cool. And if you look in the show notes, we do have a link to a, an article that gives some examples of the images they do. It's really neat. You can you have a little slider. You can go left to right to see what the area looked like, the satellite image looked like before the flooding and then after the flooding. Really cool stuff. Yep. Uh, next, uh, Major League Lacrosse. Well, they not doing so hot. They exposed the personal information of every player in the league. Yeah. So, you know, obviously the Colorado Mammoth, which I'm sure, Alex, you're a huge fan of the Mammoth. No, this is actually um, the Outlaws, the oh, outdoor lacrosse. The outdoor lacrosse, not the indoor. I, I apologize to any Mammoth represented who I, who I may have offended there. Um, so yeah, they, they put their, basically all of their player and potential player data in a spreadsheet, which they put on the web and you could just click on a link on their website and see all of their social security numbers and addresses Oops. and, and what their, their real full-time job is when they're not playing lacrosse. Yeah. Pretty yeah. good stuff. Yeah. That, it's a pretty big oops. I'm sur- sure somebody's not coming back to work the next day, but the good news is, um, they did get prepaid credit monitoring. So this, this problem shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't hurt anyone, right? So Panasonic Automotive Systems is working with the uh, the CDOT, Colorado Department of Transportation, to to do a smart highway on I-70 up in the mountains. Yeah, so there's like, a, I believe, a 70-mile stretch that they're going to be deploying these uh, sensors and other things for a smart highway. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly how smart it's going to be. Um, but you know, it's supposed to get road conditions and other things like that. But yeah. you know, when I saw this article, it just, it screamed to me, you know, security issue. Yeah. 
as you and I were talking before the show, we, I was trying to figure out exactly why they're doing this and what the what the real value is. You know, the, the, this company, the Panasonic, they're also making the infotainment systems for many new cars. Um, and th- this should be integrated with that. So as you're driving up the road, it can tell you, you know, hey, icy conditions up ahead. Uh, I, I see some value. I think that we're missing something. There's some kind of, there's some kind of you know, um, final ta-da that will make this more impressive. But certainly there's going to be security risks. And, you know, what are we going to do about that? Pro- probably deal, you know, get the security risk exposed, you know, in the, in the worst possible way is my guess. Yes, probably. Uh, next, Western Union is moving their headquarters. So they're moving from Douglas County uh, to one of the new developments on Bellevue, uh, still in the tech center. Um, but I think they are, they're technically in Denver now, right. as opposed to being in Douglas County. Yeah. That, that North side of, of Bellevue is officially in Denver right there. And it's just on the West side of 25 brand new building. It's actually pretty close to my house. And I've been watching it go up, look pretty good stuff. I'm not sure why they're moving that the article said, uh, to be closer to, um, the, the airport for visiting guests and, um, shorter commutes in general, but interesting move. It's a pretty big move from, for Denver in general. Yeah. And it's brand new building. So I'm sure that that's a benefit. Um, I would bet that since they're moving into Denver, Denver probably gave them some incentives or something too. Well, so galvanize this, this story kind of surprised me. Galvanize just laid off 37 people, which is about 11% of their workforce, uh, here this last week. Yeah. And so galvanize, you know, they do training and, I don't know that they have an accelerator, but they have, um, you know, workspace for startups and other things like that. Um, And we had talked about them, I don't know, a couple, two, three weeks back about them landing a deal to do, um, was it Amazon Web Services training? Alexa. It was Alexa training. Oh, Alexa. Yeah, that's right. Um, So, yeah, I mean, considering that story a couple weeks ago, it's surprising they're laying folks off. But, you know, the story talks about how it's... uh, it's a very competitive field for these boot camp type um, education companies right now. So our next story is about uh, Boulder schools were breached about a year ago. Um, it, they were doing having some construction work done and some scammers. It, really kind of an interesting thing that happened here. Some scammers called saying that they were working with the, the working for the construction company that the school district was using and said they need to change the way that they get paid. So, you know, it doesn't sound like it was too bad a deal. The The Boulder people said, okay, well, there's a form you need to fill out. Um, they, they got the form to them. The form was sent from a legitimate email address at the construction company with a forged signature by the CFO saying, here's the new bank, bank account information. Uh, they sent over $850,000 worth of payments before they figured out there was a problem. And, uh, and they ended up getting back all but about 173000 of it. So they got most of the money back. Uh, but it, big impacts. Yeah. It, uh, again, reading between the lines, it's interesting to me, you know, was the construction company hacked? Um, was their email insecure so that they could be spoofed? Um, you know, what was going on there? I think it was some pretty sharp um, attackers there to be able to figure out all that stuff. Yeah. So the article itself says they're putting new security countermeasures in place, but it doesn't say anything about what they are. Right. So not, not a lot interesting going on there. Uh, the Denver Business Journal released their uh, 2017 Fast 50 finalist list. So this is the fastest growing uh, Denver area companies. And uh, IntelliSecure was on that list. Yeah, it's one of the companies we talked to their CEO and one of their early employees a few weeks ago. Uh, good news for those guys. They're, they're having great growth and nice to see them get recognized. Um, uh, we've talked the last couple of weeks about Route 9B news. They, they had a auction of their assets scheduled for, I think it was the 31st. 
uh, ended up getting postponed. It's now scheduled for September 28th. So we'll get to cover this story for a few more weeks. Yeah, so they'll have another month where they can hopefully uh, secure some financing so they don't have to go through with the sale and can continue on with right. business. Um, next, uh, Ping Identity, um, they were chosen for the Open Banking UK Framework Standard. So uh, Ping is now going to be used for that standard. Yeah, so this is really cool stuff at, at Ping. What we... Uh, we have the opportunity to work for this brand new regulation in, in the UK. Um, quick summary, uh, banks in the UK need to make it easy for consumers to get data in and out. Think about how uh, in the US, you know, you, if you use Mint or you use you know, QuickBooks or something where you want to get information out of your bank accounts, it's not always easy. Sometimes they have to do screen scraping to pull data out and the banks are not really incentivized to make it easy. Well, open banking is a standard in the UK that tries to standardize this. Um, and there's a, a central organization op that, that actually manages that system. Well, that, the central organization picked Ping to be the, the data, uh, you know, the, 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 not the stewards, but the interaction b between them and the banks. And then the banks get to pick their own technologies. So, you know, so Ping's working with many of those banks as well. So pretty cool stuff. The story uh, it, it here kind of summarizes that. And uh, yeah, pretty it's been, cool. been good stuff for us here. Uh, so next, uh, Conversant, who we've talked about a few times, uh, they post record results for the second quarter um <laughs> rob and i had a a a joke earlier that um as opposed to record results they're recording results <laughs> <laughs> but depending on how you read it it's really exciting or it's really boring but but they actually had a really good quarter they have a few bullet points you know showing they had 40 new customers join in the quarter they hired another what was it 30 or so 12, 12 employees i think it was they're up and, to like 127 employees now and my favorite bullet point they had greater than 100% uh, customer retention for the second quarter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some, some funny numbers there, but uh, I'm sure that's standard salesy stuff. So Conversant is the, the company that does ethics and compliance training uh, as a SaaS service. They, they, they've been growing well. Sounds like a great place to work. Uh, really cool stuff for them. Uh, last piece of news here, Ed Rios, who we interviewed on the show a couple months ago. Uh, he was the CEO for NCC, and he has stepped down from that position. Yeah, um, I was interested to to hear more details about this. Um, you know, looking through the press release that came out, um, it sounds like he's going to be leaving to spend more time on his own business ventures. Um, I, I think that he, I don't know, I guess didn't have enough time for for all the stuff that he was trying to do. Um, and the other piece in there that was, I thought was interesting is uh, Vance Brown, who is the former CEO of Sharewell Software. Um, they do help desk and and. Um, ITIL kind of software, you know, competitor with ServiceNow and things like that. Uh, he's going to be stepping in in the interim to be the CEO um, of the NCC until they hire a full-time person. Well, I, this seems good. I know NCC has a lot of promise and there's certainly a vision there. They haven't yet delivered on that vision. Hopefully Vance can come in and, and help move us there more quickly. A couple housekeeping things. Number one, uh, if you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play. Uh, rate us. I don't think we talked about that. You could rate us. And, yeah. Only if you like us. Don't rate right. us if you hate us. Um, but that'd be great if you wouldn't mind doing that. Also, we have a store if you guys want to buy your Colorado Equal Security t-shirts, uh, hats, koozies, whatever else. We, it's all out there on the website. Keychains, phone covers, anything you could possibly think of. And speaking of the website, we do have a calendar of events on the website. We're, we'll go through the next couple of weeks worth of events now. So first, Denver Sec. Uh, they have their South Meetup on the 4th. That's the only thing happening this week. Uh, pretty pretty mellow week. 
Um, the the following week on the ninth, the, excuse me, the twelfth and thirteenth, ISSA Denver has their their September meetings, and Dion Mahaffey is going to be talking. Dion uh, is the security leader at Antero Resources, one of the big uh, oil and gas companies in Denver. I think she's going to be talking about her endpoint replacement uh, yeah, project. I believe so too. Cool to have a local person uh, talking at one of those meetings. Next, uh, CTA is having their Insight Series with Forrester Research on the 13th. On the 14th is the third uh, Women in Security event. This is the Denver Women in Security uh, group that's met a couple times already. Been a fantastic success so far. This is a chance for women to get together, kind of talk about the unique challenges they have in the security industry, uh, help promote one another's careers, and there's some good education going on as well. So, uh, number one, if you're a woman and you haven't been to one yet, highly recommend you check check this out on the 14th. Uh, or if you're a man, you probably know some women either who are involved in security or may want to get involved. So just reach out, send some notes. Let's try and uh, drive attendance for this event. And I believe I've, if I remember right, um, this is the event where they're going to have some of the the high school cyber patriot kids come in and do some presentations as well so that yeah, should be pretty cool they are and they're also going to have a bunch of recruiters there oh, right. uh, i know that i know that they have recruiters from logarithm optive ping identity uh, some other local security companies who who may want to just talk to new candidates so this is a chance to really get to meet folks it's a it's a really good opportunity to get to not only meet the hirers at security security companies but also the security leaders from a lot of different companies right now also on the 14th, uh, SecureSet, they're having a Career Conversations, Hillary Constable, on utilizing your network. Well, hopefully, uh, it seems like the order might be wrong. We need her to talk before some the, people will go utilize their network at this event. But, exactly. Or maybe you, you make a network at Women in Security, and then you learn how to utilize it. Either way. Uh, the last event here in the next couple of weeks is on the 16th. There is a CCSK training. That's a Cloud Certified Security Knowledge training. It's, a, it's the Cloud Security Alliance's... Um, kind of entry level ish right. uh, certification. I took this five years ago or something. Uh, highly recommend taking a look at this if you really want to learn how to get more knowledgeable about the cloud as an entry point. Uh, it's put on by Mohammed, who's a, who's our friend who works at OIT and I, uh, security with Debbie Blythe, and he's also on the board for the local cloud security alliance. Uh, and one more event that we wanted to talk about is not in the next couple of weeks, but. Um, there is a SANS Security 511 Continuous Monitoring and Security Operations course that's coming up. Um, this is actually happening at the Logarithm headquarters on the 18th to the 23rd. So uh, Logarithm wanted to have this class for their folks, uh, but there's also some open slots there. So if that's something that would be of interest to you, uh, you can sign up through SANS just like a normal class, but it'll happen here in Colorado at the, the Logarithm headquarters. So no travel if, you, if you've been yep. looking about doing SANS and it's hard to pay the... The, the price tag and have to do the travel, well, here's your chance to, to try and just pay the price tag for the training. Exactly. So let's jump into the jobs. Uh, first, uh, Cognizant is looking for an endpoint security architect. So we heard from Jacob Rubin over there. Uh, they're looking for somebody. So uh, if you want to work with Jacob, go ahead and check that one out. So this Cognizant area, it used to be Trizetto down in the tech center area. Um, if you guys are familiar with Trizetto, pretty good sized company that was swallowed up by Cognizant two or three years ago. They've really been doing some cool stuff since then. I'm we're supposed to get Matt Schufeld, who's the CISO over there on the show one of these days uh, to talk about what they're doing. Uh, Digital Globe is looking for an information system security site reliability engineer. Welldyne, who I hadn't heard of before, but they look like they manage prescription insurance uh, for a lot of different pharmacies. They're, they're hiring a information, a director of information security, which is their CISO title. They actually have the, the title CISO there as well. 
Uh, Vertifor is looking for application and product security manager. Yeah, and Vertifor is one of the companies that's owned by the same private equity that owns Ping. So I, I actually know the the guy who had security over there, um, Adrian, and I'm happy to, to share information if you guys are looking at this. Uh, they are looking for someone who, who knows how to, done, how to do product security, application security, and maybe he's done it before. Uh, Accenture, they are looking for a cloud security senior manager. Uh, IntelliSecure is hiring a cybersecurity intelligence expert. So if you're an expert, go ahead and apply there. At intelligence. <laughs> Uh, the Bureau of Reclamation is looking for an information system security officer. SecureWorks is hiring a security sales engineer focusing on SLED, state and local government and education. Um, and that, that's, like I guess, SecureWorks here in Denver. And then some company I've never heard of, Ping Identity, is looking for an IT systems administrator. Yeah, if you want to come do IT for an awesome company, that's a good opportunity. Uh, reach out to me if you want to. I can help you get plugged in there. Well, that's it for the news this week. Uh, our feature interview starting in a couple minutes is going to be uh, Brian Martin, also known as Jericho, talking about some pretty interesting stuff. He's been uh, he's been in Denver for thirty years or whatever, and 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 really has been doing some fun stuff in the community. We're going to get to hear about attrition.org. If you haven't taken a look at that website, you might want to look at attrition.org before you listen to the interview because it's really cool. Yeah, uh, Brian's a really interesting guy, so I'm looking forward to hearing it. Cool. So. All right, well, have a good weekend, or have a good week, and we'll talk to you next weekend. Thanks, Rob. Hello, this is Ian Buxton, Senior Director of Information Risk and Security at Vail Resorts. This is Colorado Equals Security. For Colorado security professionals, by Colorado security professionals. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. Uh, for this feature interview, I get to have the opportunity to sit with one of Colorado's um, foremost security Good guy, gray hat, black black hat, uh, historical guys. Um, we get Brian Martin, also known as Jericho, who runs attrition.org. Uh, Brian and I were just talking about um, rehabilitating raccoons. So Brian, want to tell, tell how we got there? Why are we talking about rehabilitating raccoons? Right. So uh, in the industry, a lot of people know me as the squirrel guy. Um, I tend to post or tweet about animals and squirrels more than security these days. Uh, and yeah, we were talking about it in the context of not only are they fun, clever, resilient creatures, but I actually volunteer uh, up north, just outside of, outside of Longmont, at a place called Greenwood Wildlife Rehab, and we rehabilitate uh, around 3,000 animals a year, Colorado wildlife, that includes just about every species of bird here, um, waterfowl, so you have geese, ducks, we get some uh, rare ones in, bitterns, uh, cormorants, uh, we also do raccoons, uh, which I am now trained to, uh, to work in, so that's fun. Um, raccoons are always, you know, everyone loves them when they see them on the internet, but when one's walking up to you or your trash can, it's a different story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's basically my Sunday, don't touch a computer day, go and help animals. Uh, and yeah, I've found it's very relaxing and good for the mental health. So if there's somebody listening right now who wants to help with animals, what should they do? Well, uh, unfortunately, Greenwood is about the last shop in most of Colorado. Um, the other ones have mostly shut down for various reasons, almost always funding, mm -hmm. um, because none of them receive any help from the state or uh, local governments, but they have to comply with all the regulations and hmm. rules. Um, the best way to help is, if you actually have the time, is sign up to become a volunteer. 
you'll take a one hour training session uh, for birds, for example, or a one hour session to rehabilitate squirrels. And after that, you volunteer for five hour shifts. They prefer at least once a week. And yeah, after that, you just get to help animals. Um, and then failing that, if you have a few bucks, uh, go to their webpage. Um, also check out Facebook and Twitter and you can see videos of a lot of the animals in the process. So uh, one of them that's real fun right now is we have five minks, hmm. which until last year I had no idea that Colorado had minks. I didn't know that either. Right. So last year we got one in. Uh, his name was Robbie, and he got released within 24 hours because he was perfectly healthy. Yeah. He had fallen down a window well. Um, someone found him and thought it was a ferret, so they took it to Longmont Humane. Right. Longmont Humane didn't actually identify it until they went back and they said, oh, crap, that's not a ferret. And I had heard the rumor uh, on a Sunday, and I was working the front desk at Greenwood and said, hey, if you can get them over here, we'll be glad to take them. Yeah. And so, yeah, now we have five little, well, they're getting big, but five baby minks. So these are the animals that are of the infamous mink coat. Is that correct? Yes, uh, technically. Um, <laughs> I, had no, I, did, I had no idea they were in Colorado. All yeah. Right. No, there's a, there's a lot of animals that pop up, and you're just like, wow, yeah. we have these? Yeah. Uh, because sometimes they're just isolated in certain pockets or, or whatnot. But, um, yeah, it's, it's extremely rewarding uh, to watch the animals go through that process. And if you can go to a release uh, where we, you know, say, hey, it's rehabilitated, it's ready to go, yeah, it's just one of the best feelings. Yeah. So I guess we'll, we'll just take a little bit of a turn. You and I talked, was it two years ago, maybe even three years ago, or I, we did a write-up interview. Um, where I, I, we don't want to go over all the same ground, but I think it would be useful to – and by the way, I'll put the I'll put the link to that interview in the show notes. Be useful to just kind of talk about how you got into security and, and what you've been doing. So you know, back us up sure. twenty years or whatever, and, and how'd you get here? Yeah, um, I I actually kind of like telling this part of the story because I'm one of the only people in our industry that will openly admit it that I started out as a uh, what we now call a black hat hacker that I was breaking into systems. Um, but the, the statute of limitations is, is oh, passed. Yeah, it's passed. <laughs> and, but part of it is that the, the mindset, the tone of it, um, the reasons were very different because back in 91 and 92, we didn't have Google. You couldn't download 15 different operating systems and run them in a VM. Um, you couldn't look up their documentation online. So the only way to learn those systems was to somehow get access to them. Um, that for us meant dialing into a voicemail system, using it as a diverter to go to a second voicemail system, to go to a PBX. So we diverted three times. We would go into colorado.edu's uh, dial-up annex. We would pop through two or three colorado.edu machines and then explore the internet at the time. Yeah. Um, and it was never malicious. It wasn't uh, defacing. Um, even back then, you know, it was, you're talking the first days of the HTTP protocol, let alone websites. What years are we talking about? Uh, 91 to 94 was okay. kind of the, the peak of it for me. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so it was it was really about what's out there. Um, the first time that you got to log into a system you had never seen, you know, it's like making the, the change from a Unix box to Vax VMS. All of a sudden, it's a completely different world. Yeah. None of the commands that you're used to work. Uh, just trying to figure out how to learn the commands, yeah. then what they do. Yeah, it was interesting. And uh, back then, it was the community was also generally more tight-knit um, because it was 
mostly a spirit of being helpful to each other or trading knowledge. And it wasn't one of those, uh, you know, work out, hammer out an agreement. It was more like, oh, hey, you know Vax BMS. I know a 1A phone switch. You want to, you know, share some of our, our skills. Yeah. And sometimes you would actually sit down in person with them and look over their shoulder and you would learn it. Other times it would be on IRC or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it was very different back then. Um, I think anyone that was hacking during that time frame really does miss it. And mm-hmm. we we talk, we joke, and we get harassed a little bit about the good old days. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a world that's long since gone, and I don't think that will ever return. Uh, or if it does, it's just much more isolated uh, because the way the internet's changed. So how how did you develop a community in I assume in Colorado around that? Because you're you're all hacking into individual things. How did how did you guys get together? BBSs or it was BBSs. Um, that's where uh, you start to identify other people, and depending on uh, the nature of the BBS at the time, whether it was a little more closed. Or uh, oftentimes you would log in and default access. You would have access to, say, 10 forms or whatever. And then once the, the sysop identified you as, oh, kind of a hacker type, you might get access to a general hacking forum. And from there, the more they learned about you or what you were interested in, it might open up new avenues or someone would send you a message and say, hey, I noticed that you mentioned this, um, you know, SOS 413. I've been having a hard time with this exploit or, you know, do you want to compare notes? Yeah. And um, at the time, I think it was 92, give or take, uh, there was a, because back then there were hacking groups, you know, kind of akin to a gang that you had your fellow people you ran with and everyone was proud of their their name and their skills and what they could accomplish and I joined a, a group called TNO uh, the New Order um, and we like a lot of groups we published uh, online zines with hacking articles mm-hmm. and basically shared some of our knowledge Is that a national group or a regional group or what? it was all Colorado um, okay. at least at the time um, I think one of the members may have moved uh, but it wasn't, you know, and it, there were national groups. It was people who knew each other that were all part right. of Right. We group. actually met several, originally once a week, and then uh, two of us became roommates. Hmm. Then sometimes it would be Friday, Saturday, uh, both nights would be six, seven, eight-hour hacking sessions. Yeah. Um, driving around town, going trashing, and uh, looking for manuals and everything. Uh, so, yeah, that also really lended to that tighter-knit community. Um, because we were friends as much as kind of work colleagues. And even back then, it, it was still almost like a company. It's like, hey, I'm having a problem. Let's, let's go get, talk to so-and-so who is really our Unix guy. Hmm. Or, man, we lost two diverters. Let's go talk to the guy who's doing all the scanning for phone systems. Yeah. You know, um, So we all had our little skill sets, and then we started cross-training I was really into phones to start, uh, Freak. Yeah. And uh, one of the guys in our group, he was really good with Unix boxes. And we one night said, okay, let's cross-train. He started teaching me everything he knew about Unix and hacking. And I showed him as much as I could about phones. Um, and then even on a national level, uh, there was a hacker that at the time, I think he lived in Texas, but he had grown up in Colorado and he was a really solid phone guy. Yeah. Um, and he came in and we set up a meeting. He basically was like a guest lecturer, showed us <laughs> how to do 1A switches. 
And then once I really latched onto that, and uh, after that, it was, okay, I want to learn more. Then it was trashing 1A switches, looking for command output and everything. And uh, one of the funniest stories I can remember is the Denver Southeast uh, 1A switch. It's over off Colorado Boulevard in Evans, I think. Okay. Uh, I actually lived less than half a mile from it. So it was basically, oh, after work, let's run by, jump in the dumpster, pull it out, all the trash. And we would look for these logs of all the command output. And uh, so we're doing this, and months into it, I'm going through my night's hall, and I notice, whoa, someone's running the same kind of commands I am. And I, it was another hacker. Yeah. Turns out it was the guy that we ended up talking to that did the guest lecture. Oh, really? He still called in from Texas to access that switch. Um, yeah. And yeah, I told him about it, and he just thought it was hilarious uh, because it ended up being just a, a great coincidence. And you know, but it was also oh, by the way, I've been shredding those, so the evidence is gone. <laughs> um, huh. Yeah, those are the kind of stories that anytime a few of us get together now, we still reminisce over it. And uh, any of the guys who I know part of this, other than you, obviously. Who, yeah, um, I. They don't want to throw their names out right now. I, I, I will let them out themselves. Right. You definitely know, I would say at least one or know one or two by reputation sure. if you haven't really talked to them. Um, okay. Well, it's cool that the people are still in the community. All right. So so very cool you guys built a community. Did you have a job at this time? What were you doing? Uh, so when I moved to Colorado the first time, uh, I think that was 92 maybe. I think so. Anyway, um, my first job was working at Computer City uh, as a cashier. Then eventually they realized I knew quite a bit about the computers themselves. So I started doing sales, Hmm. went to Best Buy after that, and worked on the sales floor. Uh, I also sold cell phones. And another irony of ironies, um, years later when I talked to Kevin Mitnick, that period was when he actually lived in Colorado under a different name, and he said that he frequented that Best Buy oh, yeah. quite a bit, and he remembers a guy that really knew cell phones, so we're pretty sure that I sold him one of his cell phones. It's just another freak coincidence. For those who don't know, Kevin Mitnick was uh, was convicted of all kinds of computer abuse, one of, the, one of the early hackers, and served some time in prison, and he's now kind of a speaker and consultant right yeah and one of the reasons that his name is well known is that uh when he when he was busted i think it was the second time and he was in the la um county jail the judge said that he could not have phone access that he could not touch any electronic device and the reason that he couldn't have phone access is that the da or whoever argued that he might be able to call up a military installation and whistle nuclear launch codes. <laughs> and the judge bought it. Well, they didn't know much back then, I assume. Right. Or they didn't care much either way. Right. Um, so he was not only stripped of those kind of privileges, but he was denied a bail hearing for over a year. Wow. Which, constitutionally, that's just unthinkable. Yeah. So his case had all kinds of legal problems and hurdles and wow we've never heard of this before um so it was very much an uphill battle for his lawyers um 
it's a fascinating story. Uh, not only that, but all the the hijinks that led up to it, and it's covered in a book or two. Um, yeah, the, the Ghost in the Wires. That's the one I read uh, by him. I, I don't know, five years ago or something like that. Interesting right. book. And then um, Samara or whoever. Uh, one of the guys that helped track him down wrote a book mm-hmm. as well. And then um, a journalist with the New York Times uh, wrote a book about it. So there were three books about that part of his life from three very different angles. Yeah. And when you read all three of them, it's another fascinating glimpse because back then those were very radically different viewpoints. Yeah. And to see the contrast. I think for anyone who hasn't, uh, who doesn't know much about the early hacking community? That I think that'd be a good entry point. Um, it's, Absolutely, it's, it's approachable. It's interesting. It's Colorado-based, uh, at least a, a large part of it. Uh, it'd be a fun thing to read. Right, they're they're compelling because they're they're written as. Let me tell you a long story mm-hmm. that's really interesting. Not here's all the technical minutiae or whatever else. Um, and even back then, I enjoyed reading any kind of. Uh, hacker security sociology books much more than the technical ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, sure, I love learning, but those are the ones that really, like I say, they told you a story. Right. And the stories are how we how we love to communicate. All right, let's move forward. You, you know, you're working at Best Buy. Uh, how did you get into security? Well, uh, from Best Buy, then I started working at what became the Geek Squad. Mm-hmm. I was actually one of the first Best Buy techs that actually started doing in-home oh, yeah? work. Did they give you the, the little... Was it a BW? No, no, this this was that. use your own car and we'll pay you for mileage. It was basically the pilot program that turned into the Geek Squad. Yeah. Um, and after that, uh, one of the, the guys in my hacker group, he had been working at a, a trade college here in Colorado. And he said they needed another instructor to teach uh, what they called business computer science, which is primarily Office, uh, Excel, you know, desktop business applications. Yeah. Um, then I helped him design an intro to, to Unix course. Um, so that was my first real job as far as something related to, to computers other than selling or fixing them. Um, after that, uh, another a, a friend of ours, um, he worked at a security company down in Colorado Springs. And at the time, my resume showed that I knew nothing about computer security Yet, I clearly did, um, so I had an interview with two guys from that company, and they said, look, you know, you seem like you, you really know your stuff, but uh, we do a lot of, you know, consulting with the military, we have to share the resumes with them, and if they see this, they're not going to understand that you seem to know computers, and, um, you know, is there anything that you can tell us that's really compelling, basically fight for this, How? why do you deserve the job? Yeah. And uh, so this is back in the days of the Motorola flip phones, and one of the guys had one. I said, can I borrow your phone? Took the battery off, jumpered it into test mode, hit a few buttons, and I handed the phone to him and said, listen. And so he puts the phone up. He's like, what am I listening to? I said, someone else's conversation within about 100 yards of here? You're hired. (laughs) It it was almost that simple and that quick is that as soon as it became a hands-on demonstration and that it was just kind of like, oh, no, this is easy enough. Um, So in 96, I got my first penetration testing job. Hmm. Uh, Back then, there were very few companies doing it. Uh, It was, I want to say 97 to 99 was kind of the big explosion, as I recall, of pen test companies forming or whatever. Um, 
so yeah, that was a it was a big transition, mm-hmm. um, and then from there, that was pretty much cold turkey, no more hacking. At that point, any, you went from bad guy to good guy on a dime, basically. Close, yes, and it was basically now I have something to lose. Yeah, I have a good job, I have a salary, I've got benefits, and at this point, if I got caught, that yeah, it could ruin me in the industry forever. Right. So, uh, yeah, it was quite the the change. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so you started doing penetration testing, basically yep. uh, computer testing or phone systems or everything. Or it would probably not much phone systems. They didn't care for that, did they? Most of them didn't. But we did a one or two engagements that had a social engineering component. Mm-hmm. They would give us a list of uh, twenty employees to call up and see if we get information out mm-hmm. of them. Pretext calls. Right. Uh, some of them were very straightforward. Hey, this is Bob from Admin. What's your password? Right. Um, it's amazing how many people give it away. And they did. Just make up a name. Sam well, from IT. For, for that engagement, 19 out of 20 gave up their password. Oh and the only reason the 20th didn't is it was one of their security guys. Wow. So, of course, he's... And I remember his line mostly word for word. It was something like, you know, you sound really nice, but I'd rather... Have you put a bag over my head and kick me, then give you my password? <laughs> to which, of course, we're laughing, saying, no, I understand. <laughs> um, but there was still no indication that he thought I was someone from outside the company. Um, was it a pretty big company? I believe so, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we ended up doing almost all computer intrusion um, through that company in the springs. Uh, the team, we had to move to San Antonio and then once down there, we started doing some really big clients, um, insurance industry. Uh, we were already doing national banks in a few cases. Yeah. Um, yeah, like one national bank that was still running NT4 servers completely unpatched or, you know, it was quite the shock. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was the, the transition. Did pen testing for 13 years and eventually got tired of that. Yeah. Well, um, when did attrition.org come to be? Uh, I think the domain's registered in 98. So I'm going to pause you real quick. Anyone who's listening right now, pause the podcast, go to attrition.org, and just look through the site so that you have context as we go. This is this is uh, uh, this is is what Jericho is probably, probably best known for, I think, this website. <laughs> yeah. Not famous, infamous. <laughs> um, yeah, so and I, I, it really ramped up in 99. Uh, there were four or five of us that we called staff. Um, and it was basically, hey, everyone, do your thing. You know, whatever you want, whatever you think is helpful. Um, one of uh, one of the guys was big on um, teaching people about the safe use of firearms as much as com- computer security. Mm-hmm. So his page centered largely around that. Um, we were writing a lot of guides for intro to uh, security, intro to hacking. Sometimes it was just intro to Linux, you know, this is how you use some of these commands more effectively. Um, and at some point, I was getting really, really tired of news articles and that were misleading about security. So I started calling those out. And I don't even remember all the details of who else was involved, but several of us, um, I definitely spearheaded it. Uh, but we created what became known as Arata. Uh, a list of you know mistakes basically, right. and the errata section of the website kind of branched out. So it was the media, then it was companies like if a security company got hacked or whatever. Um, we were the first one to catalog data breaches hmm. as part of errata. Uh, 
And the, probably the one that we're most well-known for, because it's controversial, is people that we thought were frauds or charlatans in our industry. Uh, we would actually document that by name, show all the evidence that we had, and basically to offer it as a warning to people doing business with them. It's like, you know, do your due diligence, make sure you understand who you're getting involved with, um, and that took a toll uh, emotionally and even physically. Uh, there's been a few years of my life where I walk out my front door and I'm looking around for people with guns uh, yeah. because I have received several death threats. Um, people don't want to be on that list, do they? No. Uh, and when you tell them you're not going to take it down, yeah. then, yeah, they're like, okay, fine. I'm going to meet you at a conference and we're going to, quote, talk about this. Mm-hmm. You know, so... It needed to be done. I don't regret that, but it it's not easy at all. You have a, you have a whole section on the website. Just, I have it up right now uh, around legal threats. Yep. I, I assume this is just, is about the charlatan stuff, or what's this? About? No, that's actually um, uh, companies that are threatening researchers for disclosing wow. vulnerabilities. Um, that's one that I'm probably most happy about that si- that part of the site is because it does show a clear pattern of certain vendors trying to intimidate researchers to hide vulnerabilities. Mm. And most of the people in our industry, I think, are much more, uh, no, that information should be public so that your customers are aware of it, that they can install the patch. Mm. Um, Because if a company releases a a patch and they don't say what it's for, well, why do I need it? You know, they may not install it. But as soon as you say, hey, it's a security patch, and as soon as you even say, well, there's a remote code execution vulnerability, that becomes more compelling. Then the admins are like, yes, we have to install this patch. Um, So you don't necessarily need to disclose all the technical details, um, but vendors, they just can't go after researchers like that. It's not ethical to me. I do feel like, and I'd love to get your take on it, it feels like the industry has come a long way and that responsible disclosure is something nope. that many companies are taking seriously now? Back up. We okay. do not use the term responsible disclosure anymore. Right. What do we say? It is coordinated disclosure. Coordinated, okay. Um, this is actually a little bit of a campaign of mine. There's a lot of people that are embracing that, and the reason being is that that term was invented by a vendor to essentially to use it to potentially demonize the researchers. Tell them what the, they know what the ethical thing is to do versus... Right. right. And the problem is, is that some of these researchers were being responsible according to those terms and the terminology put forth. Um, but the problem is that the vendors weren't. They were taking years to patch these vulnerabilities and they were kind of... I don't know, they had their head in the sand to a degree because they thought that, oh, well, only one person in the world knows it and he's working with us. No, that's not how it works. Um, There's been a long history of the mutual discovery that show, yes, two or more parties knew of that vulnerability at the same time. And if two did, we have to assume one or two bad guys knew it as well. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's why I find it important is not to use the term responsible disclosure anymore, that it's a coordinated thing. It's the researcher and the vendor working together to produce a patch and release enough information to make it compelling for a company to install them. So you're telling me I need to go to, to Ping Identity's webpage and change my responsible disclosure title to, to coordinated disclosure? Is that what I'm hearing? That 
That would be ideal. I will will look into it. I'll say that. Well, just consider is that if a researcher has a bad experience in the past with a company uh, that went after them legally or threatened them, is that they may read that and say, well, this is another company that may try to demonize me. And you want to make it... The goal is to make the, the happy path telling me about the vulnerability. Right. You want to make that path as available as possible to as many researchers as possible. And yeah, you want to be open inviting. And this is not just you and Ping. This is any company is that it's only going to help you. You're going to learn more about the vulnerabilities in your software or your services. You're going to be given more of a chance to patch them before a bad guy takes advantage of it. I'll tell you, you're, you have made a difference for me at, at, at Ping when I've been here a year and a half. Um, one of the times we talked in the last couple of years, I remember you saying, number one, talking about disclosure quite a bit, but also talking about, hey, any secu- I think you tweeted it, any se- security company that doesn't have security at <coughs> set up, right. you know, as is, is basically suggested by one of the uh, RFCs. RFCs, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think it was, I, I read the RFC after you tweeted it. It didn't say you have to, but it was it was a recommended <coughs> thing. And But if you're a security company, you need to do it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we we had, didn't have it externally available. Now we do, and uh, not a lot of folks could talk through it. But <coughs> but trying to trying to be that the other side of the coin, right? You're on the side finding it, being trying to be on the side where we want to be as receptive as possible and make it convenient for you to let us know versus posting it on Twitter and we find about it that way. It's actually what is basically it's that mindset that has given rise to the bug bounty programs. Is yes, we want to be receptive, and now. Hey, if we can reward you, you're even going to be more likely to report those vulnerabilities. Right. Um, and a lot of companies are finding great success with bug bounties. Um, they're not a magic, you know, bullet. They're not going to solve all of your problems. But it's definitely one thing to consider in the arsenal of your security capability and uh, response teams. Yeah. Um, so just go back to finish off the attrition.org uh, conversation. Uh, you know, I, if you haven't read the Charlatan page yet, I highly recommend everyone take a look at that. There's some fun email exchanges you've got in there as well. Uh, anything else you want to call out that fo- that's worth that's worth reading? Um, I would say probably uh, there, there's one or two. Uh, my battle with Greg Evans uh, is probably one of the the longer and more compelling to read. Is that um, in the Charlatan section? Yeah, he's yeah. I think pretty much at the top of the page. Uh, He is a character. Um, He loves to brag about certain things in the past that aren't quite accurate. Uh, He maintained for the longest time that he was the number one uh, hacker in the world or the number one penetration tester in the world or whatever uh, when there was no evidence that he was even a half-skilled one. Uh, He threatened to sue me and he was one of the only ones to actually uh, carry through with it Hmm. Uh, but even then he was well known in the uh, Atlanta court system and there was there were problems with his lawsuit and he tried to file it versus John Doe's uh, in an attempt where he could use it for discovery when in reality he knew all but one of their names Hmm. and so I was one of those John Doe's and and I, it's the only time I've had to retain a lawyer. Otherwise, after my bout with him, I now joke that I'm the number one armchair lawyer in the world. Uh, but that was the one time I actually had to retain a lawyer, uh, primarily because I didn't want to go down there and defend myself. Yeah. 
if I had time and money, hell yes, I would have done that. That would have been a blast. Um, and yes, I know the adage about never represent yourself. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, hired the lawyer. And they went, he went to court and basically worked out a deal with Evan's lawyer. And uh, it was, for some reason, despite having 20 articles up about Evan's, he wanted one piece of one article removed. Okay. And so I said, wait, let's get this in writing. I read it and I said, yes, we'll agree to that because first I'm done with court. The case is solved. So I removed one image from one article and replaced it with the image that was here had to be removed because Greg Evans threatened to sue. <laughs> and so it became very much a Pyrrhic victory because it was also on archive.org. Right, of course. It's under, yeah. <laughs> so I... Yeah, it was just did absolutely... You, did you have a link to the archive.org? I think I did. I, it, it's probably still there, or I imply it. Okay. Uh, that was one of those that I was following the letter of the agreement. Uh, I was a little wavering, wavery on the uh, the spirit of the agreement. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, like I said, he's a character. Um, after that, it's just such a, a weird mix. And here, here's one that's even relevant today. Um, on the list, there's, I forgot his name, uh, some guy, he claims to have invented email. Oh. And he is currently trying to sue TechDirt now because TechDirt wrote an article exposing him saying, look, you didn't invent email like you claim. Um, but yeah, I had covered him, uh, I think it was 2012, okay. several years ago. Uh, but yeah, this guy's still going around claiming it to anyone that will listen and in my article, it was basically, here's why the claims are false. Here's the RFCs that show the foundation of emails. His name's nowhere on them, this right. and that. So I, I approached it more, you know, just let's lay out the evidence. You make up your mind. Um, but, yeah, this guy has resurfaced now. And I was like, wow, it's a blast from the past. Yeah. I'm glad he's trying to sue someone else, not me. Um, but, yeah, TechDirt is a great organization. They write some incredible articles. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think right now they're encouraging people that if you like their content is to buy a shirt or help them out because they are going to have to mount a legal defense hmm. and it will be costly. Well, why don't we get a link in the show notes for that as well then? Right. I think it's just techdirt.com or at techdirt on Twitter. Okay. Uh, I do want to, we're going to run out of time here, so I do want to keep, keep moving. Why don't you talk about, uh, I don't know if OSVD is the next thing in your chronolo chronology or... Well, actually, so despite all my my interest in sure. the, the industry. The one thing that I have done pretty much most of my professional and hobby life uh, with computers is maintain a vulnerability database of mm -hmm. some kind or another. For the hacker group, it was more exploit database. Uh, these are the exploits, and we actually had a classification system so that we could quickly say, okay, this one's remote, requires authentication or not, um, whether it was denial of service versus execution. Um, and in 2004, I believe it was, uh, just maybe a year into the project, I got involved with OSVDB, which at the time was the open source vulnerability database. Um, I became one of the officers of the Open Security Foundation, which was created to run that, and then another project, uh, Data Loss DB, mm -hmm. which was seeded off of the attrition errata breach yeah. archive. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very much a collector one way or another. 
But is the data loss database st- still up? No, uh, both OSVDB and data loss DB were shut down. Um, the overall reason uh, is that, well, OSVDB was designed to be a community effort. The philosophy early on was, well, if every security professional logs in for 15 minutes a week to help with one vulnerability entry, we will crowdsource and have the most amazing database that's free for everyone. Problem is we had very, very few volunteers. They wouldn't stick around. So then we said, okay, well, start kicking us five bucks. You know, uh, William Knowles, who um, took over the ISN mail list from me, that was one of his big things. Skip one cup of coffee a month. Give me $5 so that I can keep providing this service yeah. for you. Because, unfortunately, there are costs associated with those services. So with OSVDB, uh, we had people using the data uh, in ways that violated our license. And some of these companies started profiting very heavily off of it. Um, early on, I think 2008, nine or so, uh, we found one company using our data and basically approached them and said, hey, you're not supposed to use the data in a commercial atmosphere. You need a license for that. And he says, oh, well, you know, how about I donate? And we said, that, that probably works. He PayPal'd us 20 bucks. And his company was already making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Yeah. Um, eventually, uh, Jake and I uh, formed a company with uh, three other people called Risk Based Security, uh, who I'm with now. And for the first two years, we were offering a vulnerability database based on OSVDB as a service, where we had more metadata, more fields, but we still kept that one free. And it was our biggest competitor. Hmm. It was. Business-wise, it was not very sound, but we were still that compelled to try to make that data free. We still wanted that to be available to everyone. We believed in the open source idea, um, and eventually, no, we just we get we would receive more and more uh, warnings that companies were using it. Um, in some cases, they would talk to us as RBS and say, "Hey, your service sounds great, but we don't want to pay that much money for it." Right. And then a month later, we saw them scraping the OSVDB data. Right. So we had to close it down. Um, it was, uh, and I think Jake will agree with me, it was probably one of the hardest decisions either of us ever had to make because we put a lot of time into it. And it was basically the same thing on the data loss side. Um, Is it about a year ago, by the way, you shut that down? Uh, OSVDB was now, I think, two years, okay. give or take. I remember I remember when you did it. Right, so if you go to... Pretty big news. If you just go to osvdb.org, it'll redirect to the blog, and I think it might be a pinned blog about the, the closing down. Um, so now uh, I'm focused on still running that, that type of database, um, but uh, the... It was more than two. I think it was three or maybe three years that RBS completely funded OSVDB, provided the manpower and the money to keep the servers running, uh, to do all the data input. Um, and during that time, the uh, we were much more timely than we had been before when it was just a free hobby project. Right. Um, but yeah, that's the foundation of what we call VulnDB on the RBS side. Um, and it's basically vulnerability intelligence as a subscription model. And... Uh, we're finding it increasingly easy to sell that service because more and more people realize now that the other well-known public source of Vuln Intel, which is CVE, mm-hmm. is woefully behind uh, to the tune where they're missing about 50,000 vulnerabilities that we cover, for example. Yeah. 
Um, they're also uh, desperately trying to change their model. They're going to what they call a federated system where they're making more and more companies able to assign the CBEs. Right. And now they have a web form where any researcher can request it. And that's fine. That's great on the turnaround time. But now they're also letting the people write those CBE descriptions themselves. And so the quality of CBE right. has gone way down. Inconsistency too, right? Right. And some of them, they're, they're so vague that you don't understand what the real risk is. Yeah. And now it's turning into more work for the companies. It's like, well, we can consume this data for free, except for it's what I call the high cost of being free. Right. Is now you have to have people go through, reread the disclosures, try to figure out what the vulnerability is. Oh, there's the version information we need. No, we're not even running that version. Yeah. You know. Uh, it's just it's not sustainable in today's atmosphere where organizations have a hundred thousand computers and uh, a security staff that is amazingly talented but way too small where they're still trying to make decisions about well we can't patch all the vulnerabilities we have to triage um, and yeah you just can't afford to to sink that kind of time into it mm. um, so yeah CVE they're improving their number of vulnerabilities covered but that's not helping anyone, right. you the know. The quality's going down at the same time. Right. Wow. So anyway, that's uh, that's one of the two big things we do, and the other one is we offer data breach intelligence. Hmm. What's um, that mean? So every week you'll hear about a company lost five million records, uh, patient data, whatever. Sure. Those incidents have become so commonplace that it's only the big ones that are covered. Yeah. Uh, we catalog the other two hundred and fifty that happened that week. You yeah. know that kind of thing. And so we have an incredible database of <clears throat> what companies were breached, what uh, information was lost, whether uh, it was a malicious act, whether it was accidental, was it internal, was it external, was there a lawsuit involved? So once again, we're wrapping a lot of metadata around this. Um, and our, our number one consumer of that is the insurance industry, because mm -hmm. right now cybersecurity insurance is the big thing. Yeah. You know, companies are saying, wow, we can actually pay pennies on the dollar to get insured, and if we get breached, we get a lot of our money back, you know, that kind of thing, uh, or they get compensated for it. Uh, the problem is that the insurance companies, they have 200 years of data on, like, household fires, and uh, they have 100 years of car accident information, but they really had no glimpse into data breaches and what's causing them and what's the fallout um, so, yeah, they're big fans of that kind of data, um, yeah. which is interesting because it, it essentially starts to act as the actuaries for cybersecurity insurance. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so when people ask, and I, I talk about this, I, I say I, I don't like the term threat intelligence. It's too broad. Too big, it's yeah. an umbrella term. And I understand it in, in certain conversations and contexts, but I'm very quick to tell them, we offer two very specific types. Yep. We don't do malware. We don't do threat actors. We don't do IP-based. We specialize in two kinds, and by doing that, I think that you know, you're able to offer a lot more superior offering versus um, some companies that offer threat intelligence, and it's a little bit of all of it, and oftentimes it's just so much data, and you don't necessarily even know how to integrate it into your organization. It's yeah. like... Well, great, I can read this report, but now what do I do? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, long story short, vulnerability aggregation, it's basically something I've specialized in for a long time. Um, for fun, I have debated with people that 
there are less than 10 people in the world that can call themselves an expert on mm-hmm. vulnerability databases uh, because there are so many more nuances around them that people realize. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually, the next time I do a presentation, it's probably going to be on that topic, yeah. that they're not simple and show a lot of examples of what we have to figure out, what we have to do. Um, and now the game is every day. I send dozens of mails to researchers and vendors and say, hey, you have an error in your advisory. You didn't clarify this. What about that version? Yeah. You know, um, So I, I'm, I've got a good relationship with a lot of them, but it's exhausting trying to, to chase down this information that you can argue should have been there in the, the first place. Um, well, I'll say on the vendor side, it's not always easy to, in the middle of, in the, in the middle of you know, finding a vulnerability to be... Number one is can, totally candid. You know, protect. Mm-hmm. You want to protect your customers. You want to, you know, do it the right way. And and maybe you know, we, maybe we don't all have the nuance of the right way to do it. So I appreciate the, right. the guidance whenever I hear it. Uh, let's take it. Take a little bit of a left turn. You know, the the three hundred three group you've been a part of for a long time. It's not even a real quick. It's not a formal group. Yeah. It, it actually um, it started out as a joke because back in the early nineties. A notable charlatan named Carolyn Meinel, Uh, she was big on using her words to try to demonize certain people and everything. And uh, she, and I don't think it was necessarily even referencing me, even though we went head to head on a lot of issues, Um, but she she called it the 303 gang or something like that. And so after that, then it became just this ongoing joke in the 90s. Yeah, I'm part of 303, yo, represent, you know. Um, and then eventually it just kind of stuck that 303 is this loose group of mostly security people. Yeah. Uh, earlier on, yeah, it was the, the loose group of hacker groups because um, we had a few back then. And then it was, oh, well, you're kind of into security or you're into this, which is kind of a fringe topic we love to talk about. And yeah, now it's just a, a big mix of people. There's no membership, you know. If you're into security and you want to join the mail list, cool. Uh, sometimes we talk about serious stuff. Usually we don't. <laughs> we are well known for inappropriate remarks across the board. Yeah. Um, but it is also one of those that it's a great resource in that. Oh, hey, I just left. Uh, you know, my company. I'm looking for a job. Boom. You might have three or four links to to open jobs where someone already knows you, can vouch for you, get you in the process. Other times it's, hey, I'm having a hell of a time trying to figure out this software. And someone will say, yep, I know all about that. Let's talk mm-hmm. off list. Uh, so it's a valuable and yeah. great resource. And you guys put together a party every year for for Hacker Summer Camp? Who, well, yeah, for, and it's not me. Uh, I, I haven't been to DEF CON in a few years. Um, but when I went, I would just volunteer. Uh, at DEF CON, it was centered around Sky Talks, which is kind of an alternate track. It's not recorded. Um, it's a little more kind of old school and freestyle that we want your weird fringe topics. Mm-hmm. We want the ones that DEF CON said, that's kind of cool, but not main stage material. Okay. Um, and after Sky Talks, yeah, on, I think it was Saturday night, would be the 303 party. And we would usually have some ridiculous posting about what it took to get in the party. And you had to know this and have this handshake or this challenge coin or whatever. And usually it was more or less, hey, he's your friend, come on in. Yeah, hey, Rob's at the door, let him in, I know him, you know. Um, and yeah, it was just a way for us to kind of, uh, like many of the, the parties there, time to unwind, you yeah. know. Uh, it is a summer con, it is 
uh, it's supposed to be fun and everything, but if you actually go and you stand in lines and you go to the talks and then in between it you're talking business with all the people that you haven't seen for a year, it's a stressful, intense, yeah. now week-long thing. And yeah, more and more of us, we kind of dread the idea of DEF CON. It's like, shit, now it's eight days of stuff? I don't want to be there for eight days. It's a long time in Vegas. Yeah, because you know, oftentimes you're up real early. You end up staying up until three. And it's like, crap, now i got to go catch a talk at nine because my company wants me to. Um, so yeah, it's uh, yeah, that was basically the idea of the party is yet another one where people can unwind. Yeah. Another thing that I think you do, aren't you on one of the CFP review boards out there? Um, I've been on several. Uh, the one that I spend the most time is DEF CON. Yeah. Uh, I'm one of, I think there was 25 reviewers this year. Yeah. We had 534 submissions, uh, which was just over half of what Black Hat got. They topped 1,000. Yeah. Um, 534 for how many slots? I don't even remember how many tracks or slots. Part of it is that when they submit, uh, we have the option of saying we don't think it's main stage material, but maybe it's good for the 101 track, um, which is actually getting a huge room this year, which is great. Um, the guy that runs that, he has put together a great program, and there's a lot of people that show up that are kind of new to security or that that atmosphere, and they have found the 101 track to be incredibly helpful. Um, one of the criteria that I put forward in my reviewing is that, hey, that might be a fascinating talk, but will someone walk out of the room and be able to use anything that you told them? Yeah. The 101 track, almost across the board, is like that. Yeah. It's all very helpful. It's immediately impactful. Um, not to say that we don't accept some of those you know, weird, fun talks. Uh, we love those as much as anyone. But um, on the CFP team, there was only... I think four, maybe five of us that actually reviewed uh, close to 100% of the talks. Wow. And it is an intensive, time-intensive yeah. process uh, because the talks start trickling in in February and we tell everyone, submit early, submit early. And I'll get to that in a second, but uh, the very last day of CFP, I think we got 105, 110. Yeah. It's always that way. Right, and then we're up against our deadline. Um, and I... As soon as I can find time, I plan to write a blog about this year because this is the first year that we actually maintain statistics. You know, I can tell you how many talks, uh, how many were accepted, rejected. Uh, I can tell you how many women submitted hmm. versus men. I can tell you, uh, based on our kind of loose terminology, how many were around phones versus computers versus IoT versus SCADA. Right. Um, overall count of how many are red talks versus blue talks. What's your take, red versus blue, offensive versus defensive? Um, I got out of the red game for my own reasons. Yeah. Um, it, it's absolutely helpful. It's great. Yeah. But it is really overshadowed and taken away, I think, from the industry is that, hey, it's great that you can break in. And we keep seeing this with data breaches. A lot of people can break in. How about you use that big hacker brain of yours to help with securing stuff? Mm. Yes, we do need people showing that stuff can be broken. We need to push the vendors to fix it. Absolutely. But in the, the big picture, that only goes so far. Um, we know that vulnerabilities aren't going to stop tomorrow or the next day. And I don't think machine learning or AI or anything else is going to magically solve it either. You know, humans will be involved to some degree. Uh, so if we know that vulnerabilities are going to keep happening and we know that the numbers are going up and the data breaches are going up and the instances of malware are going up and everything is increasing, 
something I tell everyone in our industry, we need to step back a second and say, wait a minute, we're failing our customers to some degree. Um, It's a harsh reality. Uh, There are companies that do amazing work. They put forward great people, great services. But once again, they're humans. There's going to be mistakes along the way. A company won't integrate your solution properly, or uh, maybe the CEO is going to disable it because it's inconvenient and he gets popped. Uh, You know, it's going to happen. Um, But largely, we need stronger authentication, more identity management. We need better patching systems. Um, Back in the day, it was, oh, well, we can install the patch and if the box crashes, no biggie. Uh, It's not a critical one. These days, no, it's crap. We have to install, uh, today with Microsoft, I think it was about 50 new vulnerabilities. Well, now every company in the world is trying to figure out, can we safely install these patches or do we have to do it in our you know, test network? How long can you let it sit in the test network before you install it on live? Because we also know that those same vulnerabilities take less than 24 hours to be reversed. Um, and there's a lot of effort you know, developing technology to do precisely that. So the the whole race on patching has become very weird over the years, and we just need better solutions. Well, we're we're over time here. I'll give you a chance to, any last comments, anything you want to share with the community? Um, I think one thing is uh, check your mental health. Mm. And this is for everyone, is just make sure that you're not burning out, that you're still just as passionate today as you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or whatever, take a day off. Um, I say this as someone who has worked 80 to 100 hours a week pretty much my entire life. Um, But I've learned now, nope, Sundays are go hang out with the squirrels and the birds and the raccoons and, you know, but just make sure that we're living a healthy lifestyle, uh, especially mentally. It's really hard, right? Seeing the same problem for twenty years, twenty-five years that we haven't solved the main problems yet. We still don't have great inventory of our assets. We're not good at just all of these basics. We're bad. It is hard not to get discouraged. And so there's there's actually a term around that, and it's well known in uh, medical circles, but even uh, as rehabilitators of wildlife, it's called compassion fatigue. Hmm. Um, That after doing so much good work, you still see the animals come in that have to be euthanized. And when you see that one too many times, it takes an incredible toll on you. Um, And with security, it's not compassion fatigue, but at some point there is some kind of fatigue that sets in that we're not, what are we fixing? You know, we're still having all the same problems we did 20 years ago. And I guess the other big thing I would say is that a lot of the solutions that are being offered today they're not doing a lot. We, we still haven't learned or mastered or implemented the basics. You know, um, I think that we need to really go back to our roots and say, let's go to the old model. Because another fun thing is like a, with vulnerabilities, I love historical ones. I love digging into the past, multics and all that. So uh, a couple years back, I ended up buying every security book I could find that was published in the 70s. Wow. And there are a few of them that if I put it in front of you and I cover that date, you will read it saying, wow, this is all relevant. This is exactly what we need to read. And it's just as relevant now as it was 40-some years ago. And yet a lot of companies still aren't following those basics. So uh, I would say for organizations and individuals, 
hey, that new blinky box, those shiny lights, that's nice and everything, but are you really solving a fundamental security problem or are you kind of creating a solution to what you put forth forward as a new problem that really isn't that new? You know, there's just different terminology wrapped around it. Yeah. So... Well, cool. I, I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot for this. Absolutely. Uh, maybe we can catch up with you in a year or so. You, there's a lot more to say that we didn't get through. Oh, yeah. So we'll do it again. Happy All to right. do it anytime. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.